Everybody's studiously flipping to, to John chapter 15. I hear the pages turning and the wheels grinding. So we are at the end of chapter 15. Uh, this is right about the, the middle, really, of the upper room episode in John's Gospel where Jesus is taking this last opportunity to teach His disciples. Um, so far, through the, the study that we've been on here, we've seen Jesus giving the disciples the command to love one another again and again uh, as a mark of their identity as His disciples. He's instructed them on how uh, important it is for his commands, which he tells us that he only commands the things that God tells him to command, which means that his commands are God's commands, how important it is for God's commands to live within us, to abide in the disciples. He um, tells them that the, the those commands, as those commands permeate their lives, then their ministry and their discipleship will produce fruit. That fruit is in the form of godliness, it's in the form of spiritual growth, it's in the form of being conformed to the image of Christ, and it comes out in the way they love one another, which goes back to how people will know that they are His disciples. So this this comes full circle. It also, He says, will make their joy complete as they wait during a time when their happiness is going to be at an all-time low. Now you think about this, this is right before Jesus dies. Their happiness is going to be at an all-time low, but He wants their joy to be complete. He wants them to know the hope and the peace that come with knowing who He is. He's also told them that the life that they live while they're waiting for the consummation of the kingdom is going to be somewhat troublesome. It's going to be kind of difficult. It's going to be a little bit unpleasant. I'm trying to sugarcoat it here. It's going to be terrible. In fact, he, he told them in the passage we looked at last week, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Not that the world's not going to like us, that the world's going to hate us. Because he lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law, because he taught the true application of God's law, and because he called out the empty legalism of the Pharisees and the hopeless traditionalism of the Sadducees, the religious elite of Israel hated him. The scribes, the Pharisees, the experts in the law, the Sadducees, they hated Jesus. Why? Because he told them that all of their efforts weren't worth diddly. They led the people to despise him. The people, if they stopped and thought about it, which most of them didn't, and I know that because of Jesus' answer to why he teaches in parables. Right. I teach in parables because most of the people aren't going to listen to anything but the parable. They're going to get done with my sermon, they're going to get up and they're going to say, that was a great message, preacher, and they're going to walk away and never give another thought to it. But the ones who do give a thought to it are going to have their consciences pricked by what he teaches. Imagine, just for a minute, imagine being on the, the, the side of the mountain when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And it starts out great. It starts out like one of the, some of the best sermons you've ever heard. I mean, it starts out fantastic. Blessed are the, the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, 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 the meek. And all of these different things. Everybody's like, yeah, this is awesome. 
And then Jesus says, now you've heard it said, don't commit murder. Yeah, that's right. But I tell you, if you hate a brother without cause, wait a minute. Hang on a second. He didn't even tell them to lift their feet up so they didn't get the toes stepped on first. See, he instructed everybody and told them what the full implications of God's law really meant. And so where people who listened to these messages heard them and understood what Jesus was teaching, their comfort in their own ignorance of their sin had been taken away. Now think about being wrapped up in a nice, warm, cozy blanket and having somebody suddenly come by and pull that blanket off of you. Uh Uh-huh. That's what their consciences felt like because all of a sudden they realized that all of that stuff that the Pharisees had told them to make sure they were doing and they would be okay wasn't enough. All of that stuff that the priests and the the Sadducees had told them about as far as coming to the temple and making all the ceremonies and all that kind of stuff wasn't enough. The issue was their heart attitude. And so people were unsettled in their soul. And that's the reason Jesus says that they're going to hate the people who follow Jesus. The world doesn't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to be uncomfortable. In our flesh, we hate being uncomfortable. And so... We get to the end of chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 16. And in uh, at the beginning of chapter 16, Jesus gives them another reason for His teaching. There have been a couple of places where He said, this is why I'm teaching you this. This is why I'm telling you this. I'm teaching you this so that you'll one love one another. I'm teaching you this so that your joy will be complete. Here in chapter 16, He gives us another reason. And we'll get there in just a couple of minutes. But first, we've got to look at what he says in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 15. So, let's all stand this morning for a relatively short passage. Chapter 15, verse 26 through chapter 16, verse 4. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for sending Your Son and giving us Your Word to read and to learn and to understand. Father, thank You for sending the Spirit to help us, to guide us, to to lead us into that understanding. Because without the Spirit, we wouldn't be able to understand the truth of any of this. So Father, help help us to grab a hold of these truths this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Have a seat. So in verse 26, that first word, however, 
or but. It's a conjunction. If you were a child of the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, you remember Schoolhouse Rock? Conjunction, junction, right? Joins two ideas together, right? Except the word but or the word however links those two ideas together with a contrast, right? Jesus says, when the Helper comes, and then there's a couple of clauses in there we'll, we'll skip over for just now, He will bear witness about me. When the Helper comes, He will bear witness about me. So what is the idea that Jesus is linking this to with that conjunction, with that but? They hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. No, they have a cause. And that's because the Spirit's going to come and bear witness. That's because their conscience already bears witness. We cannot say that people hate us for no apparent reason. That They hated me without a cause. That's a word written in the law. That's, that's a word written in prophecy. That they're going to hate Jesus with no real reason to hate Jesus other than their own discomfort. So this, this is a little bit one of those things that we have to wrap our heads around. Jesus, he tells us we're going to be unique. We're going to be a special people. We're going to be, uh, I've heard people say, we're supposed to be weird as Christians. Peculiar. Right. The problem is, some of us have a natural ability to be weird, not in a spiritual sense. Okay? That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about our individual peculiarities, and He's not talking about being weird just for the sake of bucking the system. He's not talking about the rebellion that we go through in our late teens and early 20s where we decide to dye our hair so that it looks like the feathers of a peacock. I'm not picking on anybody in particular, like my kids. I'm not talking about that period where a person decides that they're going to pierce themselves all over the place, look like they fell face first into a tackle box. I'm talking about spiritual weirdness. The thing that Jesus said is going to make us stick out in a crowd. Loving one another the way He loved us. That's unusual. There's... There is currently a situation with some folks that we are close to where there are individuals in the family that are unaccustomed to the idea of a spiritual family. And so when that spiritual family comes alongside and does something for these individuals, they don't know how to take it. They look at it like we're weird. Why would you do this if you don't have to? Why would you do this if you're not related to me or if somebody in a place of authority is not telling you that you must do it? That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Jesus means when He says we're going to be different. That's why the world is going to dislike us, because they don't like different. Even it, with, as, with as much different as we see in the world today, and let me tell you, 
There's some different out there, right? They don't like our flavor of different. If we are following Christ, it makes people uncomfortable. Because our flavor of different does not conform to their flavor of different. Their flavor of different says whatever feels good to a person, that person should do it. I'll never forget the first time I heard somebody tell me that they saw a bumper sticker on a car that said, if it feels good, do it. And they wanted so badly to ram into the back of that car. And then when the guy got out of the car, he he said, I can see this conversation. What would you do that for? Felt good. (laughs) But Jesus tells us that we ought to be different. He tells us that the witness of the Holy Spirit is going to cause people to hate Jesus because of their conscience being that, that little poke when they hear something, that example of the golf pro and Billy Graham, that idea of just when somebody found out that I was a preacher, they all of a sudden got concerned because they'd been using dirty language in front of them. It's that little poke in the conscience that causes people to be uncomfortable around the holy. And that's why they're going to hate us. Jesus says that the helper is going to come. The paraclete. Parakletos in Greek. That comes from two separate Greek words, para and kletos. Para meaning alongside, kletos meaning to be called. So the one who is called alongside. The idea there is somebody who walks alongside you and helps you through things. Now, over the years, it has come to mean kind of like a a lawyer or a counselor in a court situation. That's not what the Greek means. It literally just means somebody to come alongside and to help you. That's it. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit that He's going to send from the Father will bear witness to men about the truth of who Jesus is. His person, His work, His ministry, His sacrifice. That witness combined with our obedience is going to cause conversion in the heart of man. Notice the two necessary pieces. The witness of the Holy Spirit and the witness of Believers, it's both. It's not just how we live. Uh, there's, there's this popular phrase attributed to St. Francis that, that we should preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words, right? You ever heard that? Yep. Okay. Number one, nobody can trace that to St. Francis. Number two, Since his was a preaching order in the monastery, in other words, that's the whole reason his particular order of monks existed was to preach, he never would have told people, only use words when you have to. It doesn't make sense. The idea is that our lives should reflect the gospel. And that sounds fantastic. You know why? Because that means I don't have to be confronted with awkwardly talking to somebody about the gospel. I can just live out my life to show the gospel, right? 
You ever heard somebody tell you to do that? Just live your life because your life might be the only gospel a person sees. Yep. Yeah, you're right. But unless you tell them why your life looks that way, it's not the gospel. You know, the Pharisees externally kept God's law. They kept His law. They didn't work on the Sabbath. They tithed on the herbs in their garden. They did everything they were supposed to do. But not because of God's grace. Their lives looked perfectly holy. Were they? Not according to what Jesus says. It was empty, legalistic behavior modification. There was no heart change. There was no focus on God's grace. There was no focus on God's mercy. There was no mercy towards people that were different. In fact, that's probably the one thing the Pharisees were the most guilty of, was no mercy at all. We can live a holy life, but if we don't tell people about a holy God, that holy life just looks like somebody who's dedicated to clean living. Well, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't go out and party, I don't cuss, I don't do this, I don't do that. Why not? I just don't. I've heard people tell me that. I work with people like that. But they don't know Christ. The gospel message has to be included or it's just empty good deeds. So Jesus says, to, to get myself back to the text here, Jesus says that the witness and the message of the Holy Spirit is going to inform people about who Jesus is. The witness and message of the gospel shared by the disciples are the instrument by which man's going to come to salvation. The Holy Spirit see, speaks to the soul. That's the power that Jesus spoke about in uh, John chapter 3. He's talking to Nicodemus. And he says, no man can come to the kingdom unless he is born from above. Where's that birth come from? The Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit brings about regeneration, brings about that new life, gives us the ability we have to place our faith in Christ for salvation. God could have... Now, listen closely when I say this. God could have set it up so that the only thing necessary for salvation was the Holy Spirit changing a person's nature. And that is most of the job. Now you've heard me say I don't contribute anything towards my own salvation, right? But as a believer, we are part of the means of salvation of others. Our task is to share the gospel with people. God ordained that the gospel would be shared by people to people. And so we're commanded to bear witness about the person and work of Christ. And that's how we show the fruit of our salvation. That's the fruit that Jesus says He wants to grow in the life of the disciples. That's the command He wants us to follow. 
That's how we participate in the work of the kingdom. That's how we grow in Christ likeness. All that stuff that Jesus has been talking about, this is how it happens. We cannot be satisfied with just living a holy life by itself. There's got to be more. And that's how we allow the command of Jesus, the will of the Father, the power of the Spirit to abide in us. That's what makes our joy complete. That's what shows our identity as His people to the world. And that's why the world's going to hate us. Again, I said this last week. I don't want you to miss it, so I'm going to say it again. Verse 19 of chapter 15, If you were of the world, the world would love you as it loves its own. If people don't question you, if people don't mark your life as being different and weird and all those sorts of things, I challenge you, are you too much like the world? Because Jesus says that this is why the world's going to hate us. Because our life is going to look different. I don't want, I'm not talking about the world hating me because I'm mean. I've met mean Christians before too. That's, that sounds like an oxymoron, but I've met them. Okay? That's not the way we're supposed to be. I don't want the world to hate me because I'm a Christian that comes in swinging. Right? Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat you over the head with the Bible. No. We're supposed to be gentle. We're supposed to be loving. We're supposed to be self-controlled. But if the world doesn't hate us, are we sure we're not of the world? Now we get to Jesus' reason for teaching these things in chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I hate the English translation of that verse. Because when I hear falling away, what comes to mind? Losing your, Losing your salvation. That's the first place everybody goes. Jesus is teaching all this stuff to keep them from losing their salvation. No. The Greek word is the word, and you're going to love this, the Greek word is the word skandalos. That's where we get the English word scandal. It literally means that the literal translation of the Greek word skandalos is to trip someone or to make them stumble. So Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so that you don't trip and fall. Well, you know, I grew up. Northern Pennsylvania, in a farm community. Spent a lot of years on a farm. And I have tripped and fallen in a barn way more times than I care to count. Because you know what happens when you trip and fall in a barn? You generally wind up getting covered with stuff that is not pleasant. It's not. Trust me. No. It's not. Yeah, little sister, she did it too. The life that we're supposed to live is often referred to as our Christian walk. 
right? Jesus tells us that He's he's given us things to walk in. When Paul in Ephesians 2 tells us that we're saved by grace through faith and not of good works, right? So that we don't have any reason to boast. Verse 10, he tells us that the reason for that is because God has prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them. So everything that Jesus is talking about, our life that we live, is being compared to a walk. Another term that Paul likes to use is a race. When he's writing to the Philippians, when he's writing to Timothy at the end of his life, he says, I've run the good race. I've fought the good fight. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we're supposed to put off the sins that weigh us down and drag us down. The idea there is like carrying a load. We need to lay them off to the side. Paul tells us to to put off the sins that so easily beset us, the things that trip up our feet. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so you don't trip and fall on your face. When we're doing what? Walking the life that He has for us to walk. This is at the end of His three years of ministry. The end of His, quote, life. He is talking to the 11 men that He has spent three years pouring His life into to teach them because they are the foundation of the church. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. Jesus is the chief cornerstone that you set the walls off of. And Jesus says that the walls are living stones. That's us. Right? That's our plum is Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be lined up to. In light of His departure, the teacher has finished the course. Class is over. Now Jesus, to to use some modern educational terms, Jesus is giving them their capstone project. I've, I've had a lot of discussion about this at work with our education bent and everything because the Air Force wants us to start putting capstone projects in our courses where we spend the first six, eight weeks teaching the students how to do stuff, and then the last two or three weeks, we give them a project and say, now do it. And the instructors sit back and take their hands off the wheel. Because the students have to show that they've actually learned the material that you've taught them. Colleges have been doing this for a long time. Jesus is giving them their capstone project. That's the rest of their life. I've taught you guys what God's law means. I've taught you what it looks like to walk according to God's will. I've taught you how you're supposed to love one another. I've taught you how to minister to people. I've taught you the truth of the gospel. I've taught you all the information. I'm getting ready to go do it. And oh, by the way, I'm giving you these last little bit of hints so that when you're walking down that path, you don't trip and break your nose. Here's the path you've got to walk on. I don't want you to stumble. I don't want you to be put off by something unpleasant that's about to happen. Now, how unpleasant is their future? 
For those who have read Fox's Book of Martyrs, okay, or if you're familiar with church history, how does Peter die? Crucified upside down, according to church tradition. Okay? How did Paul die? Beheaded. Okay? With the exception of John, how did the rest of the apostles die? Violent, horrible deaths. And John, by the way, died in his old age. Not for lack of trying. Because they boiled him in oil trying to kill him. Okay? Not John the Baptist, though he would qualify as John the Son of the Baptist because he was deep fried. <laughs> Just checking to see if you all have a pulse. All right. The future for these guys is particularly unpleasant. Jesus says, you'll be put out of the synagogues. He guarantees them. They will put you out of the synagogues. Now, here's a place where our American mindset really doesn't help us. All right? It, it really doesn't. What's a synagogue similar to in America? Church right here. As a matter of fact, we build our churches based on the synagogue. The design, the platform, the chairs, everything about a sanctuary is built based on the synagogue. All right? In most American churches, number one, it would be extremely rare in 2018 for a person to be put out of a church. Okay? I said rare, not impossible. Okay? There are some cases where somebody does something particularly reprehensible that we aren't happy with, and so we will disinvite them from the fellowship. Okay? If, if, it was indicated from church leadership that a person may be asked to leave the church, it would probably result in a church split. <laughs> because the defenders of that person are going to go with them. The friends and family of that person are going to go with them. And if you add on to that our rampant, almost idolatrous love of individual freedom... We will proudly assert, if somebody says, um, I'm going to have to ask you not to come back to the church, our answer is going to be, I can leave any time I want to. <laughs> you didn't kick me out, I decided not to come back. Right? That doesn't help us understand Jesus saying they're going to kick you out of the synagogue. To the Jew... In first century Palestine, the synagogue was central to the religious and community life of the Jewish people. It was almost as important, and in some cases, more important than the temple. <laughs> because the only time they went to the temple was when they... Okay, if they lived in Jerusalem, they went to the temple. Why? Because it was there. Right? To use a, a modern American example that we learned in Utah, most Mormons in the United States have never been to the Mormon Tabernacle. The ones who live in the Salt Lake City area go all the time. Why? Because it's there. Same thing. 
to the Jews that lived in Capernaum and Galilee and, and, and the outer areas. That was bad. <clears throat> the outer areas of Palestine, the synagogue was where they went for their religious teaching. It's where they went for their prayers. It's, went, it's where they went for their gatherings. That was the center of their community. The only time they went to Jerusalem was if they had a pilgrimage. Like if they went for the day of Pentecost or the day of atonement or if they went for uh, the Passover. Then they would go to Jerusalem and they'd go to the temple. But most of the time they didn't go to the temple. So when Jesus says they're going to kick you out of the synagogue, that means you're going to be cut off from society. Entirely. Utterly. Cut off from society. The synagogues were the realm of the Pharisees. Because remember, the Pharisees were the experts in the law. The law was taught at the synagogues. The Sadducees came from the priesthood. The priesthood lived at the temple. The Pharisees lived at synagogues. They're going to kick you out of the synagogues. The Pharisees are going to come after you. Why? Because they know God's law and they're not happy that you've taken God's law beyond what they said. Here's the line you don't cross. To be kicked out of the synagogue was the equivalent equivalent of being disowned by your community. Shunned. If that's not enough, Jesus says that people will put them to death. And they will consider it to be a service to God. Consider Stephen. Acts chapter 7. What was Stephen's crime? Preaching Jesus. Who did he preach it to? The Sanhedrin. The Jewish leaders. And who killed him? The Sanhedrin. The Jewish leaders. And every one of the people who was in that gathering, when he was stoned to death for blasphemy, according to the Jewish law, the Jews who stoned him to death thought they were doing the right thing. To include Saul. His blasphemy was proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. That was his blasphemy. Some of the worst persecution in the first couple of centuries of the church was at the hand of the Jews before the church spread beyond Palestine. What was Saul in the process of doing? when Jesus appeared on the road to Damascus. He was persecuting Christians. He was going around arresting them to be taken to Jerusalem, to be imprisoned, to be tried for blasphemy, and to be executed. Jesus says, they will do this because they don't know the Father and they don't know me. About two months ago, I know that's a stretch, put your rewind button on, two, two months ago, we talked about the parable of the talents, right? I guess maybe it was closer to three months ago. And then before that, we had the parable of the wicked servant, right? Jesus 
talked about the wise servant, the wicked servant. The wise, the wise servant went and took care of things like he was supposed to. And the wicked servant said, well, the master's gone, so I'm going to go have a party. Right? And the parable of the talents, the two wise servants went and invested the talent and brought the return back. And the foolish, lazy servant buried it in the ground and said, well, I knew what your character was like, so I just stuck it in the ground so I didn't lose any of it. Right? In both of these cases, we have the picture of somebody who's supposed to know what the master wants, but doesn't act that way. Doesn't do what they're supposed to do. They claim to be, claim to be people who know the character of the one who's given them a command. But they don't. And Jesus says that these people who kick them out of the synagogues and kill them because they think they're doing God a service are people who claim to be sons and daughters of Abraham. But they don't know the God they claim to serve. And again, Jesus says, I've said these things to you so that when they happen, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You're not surprised and you don't trip and fall on the path. Jesus does not want His followers to trip and stumble and fall when we run into persecution because persecution is something that we are supposed to expect as his followers. He wants us to not grow weary in doing good. He wants us to abide in him. He wants his command to abide in us so that with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, his commands and our obedience, that we may bear that good fruit for his glory. And now I'm going to say some things that are probably not going to be very popular, though if you've been paying attention, I've said them before. One of the major issues in the church in the United States is, number one, we have a constitutional protection for the right to worship as we see fit. We don't have to worry about the state coming in and shutting us down. We don't have to worry about cops showing up and telling us this is an illegal gathering like they're happening in China right now. And because the probably more significant portion, I'm not going to say majority portion, but the more significant portion of people who settled this country did so because they wanted religious freedom from persecution. Oh, by the way, Let me correct your historical teaching just a little bit. Okay? They wanted freedom from being persecuted, not freedom from being able to persecute. (laughs) The Puritans persecuted the Baptists. The Catholics persecuted everybody. The Presbyterians persecuted the Methodists. That is the history of the church. They wanted to be free from the threat of persecution, 
but they wanted to be able to establish themselves as the right faith. Because we have this persecution, because we have this, at least for a time, socially acceptable set of morals and values, we've not experienced persecution in the United States. So the hardest thing I have to answer is when I'm going through a tough situation at work and people say, man, I really don't know how you can still be so joyful and so upbeat when this stuff is going on and things seem to be falling apart. So that's the toughest thing I have to answer. I can tell them, well, I have joy because of Jesus. That's good. Don't get me wrong. (coughs) That's a good thing. But the bad things that they're talking about might be, I lost my job. Not necessarily because of my faith, because we can't do that in this country yet. But that might be the tough thing that they're talking about. I lost my job. Be a whole lot more significant if I lost my children because of my faith. Or if I was being threatened with the loss of life because of my faith. See, because I can, I can claim Jesus gives me the strength to go through whatever in the face of losing my job, because even here in the United States, if I lose my job, I have unemployment insurance. When it comes down to it, the worst possible case scenario, I might have government assistance to fall back on. And I mean, And, and I'm going to use you as an, as an example, Tom. Even a person who chooses, chooses, not by situation, but chooses to live off the grid in a homeless situation may be better off than most of the world around us. How can you be so joyful? <laughs> Let's see. I live in a tent. In the woods, on property I don't pay taxes on, I don't have an electric bill, I don't have a gas bill. I don't have car registration, I might have car registration. I can go down to the city hall in Biloxi and pay my $80 fee and get my panhandling permit. I can sit outside at the corner of the intersection by Walmart with a little sign that says, Homeless Veteran, and it's true. Though I'm driving a 2018 pickup truck... How can you be joyful in that situation? The more I'm talking about it, the more I'm thinking, doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> yeah. We don't have to flex our faith that hard in this society. And so the church in the United States has gotten to the point where we don't do much of the other stuff that we're supposed to flex either. If, if I go back to what Jesus said about sending the Helper, he, he says there that when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. Verse 27 says what? You will also bear witness about Me. 
How many times have I quoted you guys that statistic? Currently in the church in the United States, among people who answer questions on a survey that indicate that they follow orthodox evangelical Christian faith by their own answers, the percentage of people who have shared the gospel with somebody in the past 365 days is less than 10%. Wrap your head around that for a minute. Less than 10%. We have 17 people here. Sorry, 18. We have 18 people here this morning. If we round that up to 20, that means in the last 365 days, according to that statistic, two people have shared their faith in the last year. 365 days. Now that might not be true of our church. This we're talking about across the United States. What did Jesus just say we're supposed to do? We're supposed to bear witness about Christ. We're not doing it. We're not. We're failing at it miserably. And it's not just this church. I read an article yesterday that was published after the Southern Baptist Convention that shows that the entire Southern Baptist Convention is in a decline. A tailspin decline. Nosedive. Why? Because the vast majority of the church members in the Southern Baptist Convention aren't sharing the gospel with anybody. We don't know how. We aren't bold enough to. We're not courageous enough to. We're not wise enough to. I don't know. But when you ask people what they're supposed, what their duty is as a Christian, you know what the biggest answer is? Come to church. Don't get me wrong. I would love to see more people do that. But that's not what we're called to do. Jesus did not say that the Holy Spirit's going to bear witness about me and you're going to come together every week to pray for it. He says, you will bear witness about me too. We tripped and fell. And it didn't even take the persecution. It didn't even take the stumbling blocks that He warned us about. All it took was comfort and peace and quiet. Probably Satan's greatest tool in the United States has been our freedom. I want to challenge you. We get up and we sing. And I tell you that you're dismissed. I want to challenge you. 
before you walk out these doors, take a look at this room. Take a look at the number of chairs. Take a look at the empty space and picture more chairs. Think about how many people could be in this room. We can hit we can fit well over three hundred people in this room. I like to see them standing out the door. We can't get people in the doors. And it's not because we don't invite people to church. Because we'll do that. Inviting people to church is easy. Because we like our church, right? Y'all better nod. Especially this side of the room. Man. We're comfortable here. We like the music. Most of the time we get along with the preacher. Might even like a message or two. So it's easy to invite people to church. That's not what Jesus said we need to do. He said we need to witness about Him. It's even easy for us to tell people what Jesus has done in my life. Because that's my life. And one thing this world has, has agreed to is that individual experience is valid. As long as you don't try to tell me that I have to have that same experience. So I can even tell people what Jesus has done for me. That's part of witnessing about Christ. The part that we fall down on is telling people what Jesus can do for them. With their sin. And that's why our churches are dwindling and emptying. That's why Olivet is in the boat that it's in today. Because for too many years, too many people came to this church because their duty was to come to church. And the gospel wasn't being shared. The only way the church in the United States is going to change is to change that idea. We've got to start getting it right.